listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Hey, today we're starting a brand new series called Death Benefits. I'm sure you're all looking forward to that. The doom and gloom, right? Um, when we were shopping for a lender for our construction loan to build this building, there were a few banks that were going to require us to take out a point man policy on me. If you don't know what a point man policy is, let me explain it to you. Basically, it is an, a life insurance policy taken out on me with the beneficiary of that being the bank or the mortgage company or, or the lender. And so if something were to happen to me, if I, you know, you know, didn't exist, then it would pay off the loan and, and the bank would have nothing to worry about. And, and it, it humored me a little bit because I thought how ridiculous this was as if you come to church because of me or you given an offering because of me. And, um, and, and we know that this church is not built upon a personality. I know some churches might be. And so, nevertheless, I get it, you know, and, and they wanted some assurance. They needed some assurance. I'm thankful, though, that we did not have to go that direction. So we did not go that direction. I want to make sure everybody understands this. We did not go that direction. Because if we would have had to, I know that it was possible that I was going to have to hire bodyguards because some of you morons would think it would be better off with me dead and the church paid for than me alive. And so I was sweating it a little bit. I was like, Lord, I don't know about this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really uneasy. I love them, but I'm not sure they love me. And um, I realized that under those circumstances, I am expendable. And so we, we did not. I, want to, I just need to make sure. For the online audience, everybody watching, I need everybody to understand, for the record, we did not have to go that direction. There is not a point man policy on my life, okay? So if... Um, if, if you think that, that the church will benefit from my death, you are wrong, except for the fact that you would get a new pastor. Other than that, there's no financial gain for the church. On the other hand, if something does happen to me, my wife is better off financially without me. It, it's true. It's true. And, and I remember early in our marriage, the early years of our marriage, I did not see the value of life insurance and, and so, you know, it was just something that was on a back burner. I'll think about that one day. And, and we just kind of, you know, went through life without a life insurance policy on me. And uh, in the event that something does happen to me, okay, I want you to mourn. Everybody understand this, okay? I'm not saying that I just want you to, you know, go around celebrating for Mandy. You know, like, yeah, she finally got rid of him and now she's got money. You know, the, I don't want you to think like that. Um, it, it will help my wife out that she won't have a struggle for the rest of her life. And, and, and let me say this. Let me say this. She won't be a millionaire or anything like that. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But, but here's a tip, a tip. There's no extra charge for this. This is not what I'm preaching on. But I just felt like I would take this opportunity as a shepherd to, to kind of lead you, it's especially for you men in the room. And the reason I say men, please hear me out, because I know that there are plenty of women that are breadwinners of the home. But men, I need you to understand that I know that for the rest of my life, even after retirement, I know I'm going to be doing something. I know that. It's how God wired us as men. We're task-driven. He created Adam to be task-driven. His, his first care in the world was taking care of the garden, naming the animals. We are task-driven. That explains a lot about us men, right? We are created that way. 
I know that for the rest of my life, I will be task-driven. I will be doing something. But men, we need to pre-plan now for our spouse and for our family that in the event that something should happen to us, something should happen to you, to me, let's allow our families time to grieve without having the stress of finances and the pressure of trying to figure out how they're going to pay what. I don't want my wife stressing about the mortgage. I don't want her stressing about a car payment. I want everything that we have to be paid in full. And in the event that something happens to me, that is how we have it set up. Everything that we own will be paid in full. If she chooses to work after I'm gone, just know this. It will be a supplemental income that Mandy will be able to go to TJ Maxx and to Marshalls and all those places that she likes to shop and buy all the little things that she likes to get, okay? She'll be okay, I promise you. And men... Again, no extra charge for this advice, but I felt like it was proper with us talking about death benefits that you needed to, to, to grab hold of this concept. Don't wait because nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. Some of you are like, what is he doing right now? Why is he? Trust me with this. You don't know how many people, how many families I've had to walk through without life insurance. And it's not easy and it's not fun. Death benefits. The amount paid to a beneficiary upon the death of an insured person. Again, this is dark, right? You're like, man, pastor, why? Why? Welcome to October. <laughs> the amount paid to a beneficiary upon the death of an insured person. Starting today and over these three weeks, I want to dive into this uncomfortable subject of death. But more importantly, death and what it means to a believer. Because death to a believer means something completely different than what death means to an unbeliever. And I recognize that in a room this full of people that, that we will, we, there's no doubt, there's some of you here that you have not yet put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And that's okay because you're in the right place. And at the end of this message today, we're going to give you an opportunity to accept the love that he has for you and to respond to that love and, and, and making him the Lord of your life. And, and, and this is an uncomfortable subject, but I want us to look at it because if, if you are like me, Please hear me out because this has been a tough year and a half. If you're like me, over this past year and a half, you have experienced more death than you ever thought imaginable. I know for me, there was a stretch in May where I either attended, officiated, or participated in six funerals in one week. Then the same thing happened just a little over a month ago where I had seven funerals in a two-week span. I have seen more death over the past year and a half than I have in all of the previous years of ministry, and I'm in my 25th year of ministry. It's been crazy how many people I know, and, 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 and I, I know that I'm not the only one in the room because what we've witnessed, it, it, I, I've had former students of mine. I mean, I was their youth pastor. I've had to preach their funeral. Some of them, some of their parents ha have died and, and they've asked me to come back and preach their funerals. Former church members of, of places where, where we've been on staff at. I, I've, I've had people that I've known for years. I mean, just, just decades. And then people that I've just met this past year that we've had to bury them. I, I, I have had to bury family members 
This has not been an easy year, and it, it has a sting, man. Right, right when it begins, right when you experience death, it has that sting to it. That, that, that you, you, just, you just know that life is never going to be the same again. Death is one of the most certain and absolute parts about life, but it is the most misunderstood. And as a group of believers, I want us to have a healthy understanding of what death is and what it means to us. My goal through this series is to help us see that not only is death necessary, but that we can prepare in advance the benefits that death will bring. To enter into the afterlife unprepared and misinformed would simply be a tragedy. And as you will see today through the, the, the inaugural message of this series, you're going to see that even Jesus was prepared. He prepared for death, a physical death on a cross. Even Jesus was prepared for death. We're going to be reading out of John chapter 12 today, the gospel of John chapter 12. And, and as you're turning there, I, I just want to note that it's interesting that the last week of the life of, of Jesus, his earthly ministry, the last week is a large focus of the New Testament Gospels, as it should be. I mean, that last week and the things that were accomplished, they, they are important to the Christian faith. When you look at the book of Matthew, over a third of the book of Matthew is dedicated to the last week of the life of Jesus. Mark also. Mark dedicates over a third of his book to the final week of the life of Jesus. Luke focuses on that, that last week for about a quarter of his book. Still, substantial. But John... John writes about the, the, the last week of the life of Jesus on this earth for nearly half of his book. For nearly half of the book, John dedicates it to the last week. So you've got 33 years, but all of these authors are concentrating on that last week. And so I think it's safe to say that whatever happened during that last week is worth us paying attention to. And so to kick this series off, we're going to read from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. And it reads like this. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The very first verse of our text gives us a timestamp of when this actual event occurred. It was six days before the Passover celebration. And you have to understand that the Passover celebration was very important to those uh, that are of, of the, the, the faith of Judaism. For those practicing Jews, this was a very important celebration. Uh, they called it Pesach 
in Hebrew, and it's one of the most sacred and most celebrated traditions in all of Judaism. You see, Passover commemorates the exodus of the Israelites once they were finally released by Pharaoh to, to, to go out into the wilderness. More specifically, Passover and where it gets its name is, is while, uh, while they were still uh, uh, slaves in Egypt and, and all the plagues had come and, and Pharaoh was so wavering with, with, with his thoughts on them and he would not completely let them go. If you remember, uh, God told, told Moses, he said, I'm going to send a death angel over Egypt and he said, every home that has the blood of the lamb smeared over the doorpost, applied to the doorpost, he said, I'm going to let the death angel just pass them over. He said, but every home that does not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he, he said, I, 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 the, the death angel is, I'm going to allow the death angel to come in and to kill their firstborn. And, and, and of course, we know that that. Moses informed all of the Israelites, all of the Hebrews. He told them about this. That was the plan. He did not tell the Egyptians. And, and when the death angel flew over Egypt, all of the firstborns of the Egyptians were killed. And, and, and it was just, it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was finally at that moment that Pharaoh just said, I can't take any more. Go, go, go worship your God. Do whatever you've got to do. Get, get out of here. It was that, it, it, that they were celebrating, that they were commemorating. And so for them, it's a joyous occasion. We have been set free from bondage, free from slavery. We had the, the, the blood of the lamb over our doorposts. Therefore, our children were spared. They were saved. And, and, and this was a, a, a major part, a major part of being a Jew. But this wasn't just any Passover, this one was unlike the 32 or so previous Passovers that Jesus had celebrated with friends and with family. This one was different. Six days before his last Passover, Jesus and his disciples, they gather at the house of Lazarus to have dinner together. And at this dinner, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the guest of honor. They are having this dinner. They've called in all of these friends to celebrate, and they are holding this dinner to, to honor Jesus, most likely for what just happened one chapter earlier where he raised Lazarus from the dead. So now Jesus and his ministry team, Jesus and his disciples are passing back through Bethany, and they plan this big celebration to celebrate Jesus and all that he has done in the life of Lazarus. And this turns out to be one of the most significant events in the life and earthly ministry of Christ. In order for us to properly understand the dynamics, first of all, we've got to look at the key players involved. The first one being Lazarus. Think about this. Lazarus. Just one chapter earlier, Jesus had raised his friend from the dead. It was a personal friend of Christ. And now we find Lazarus reclined at the table. That's how they would eat. They would kind of recline over on some pillows. The table was low. Everybody's kind of laying on the floor, laying on pillows. And, and some versions of the Bible say Lazarus was reclined at the table with Jesus and the other guests. I can only imagine some of the, the questions and comments that were made towards Lazarus as, as he lays there at the table trying to enjoy a meal with everyone. I, I picture this big smile on his face. He was once dead. Now he's alive. And, and, and questions had to be coming up. You know, like, hey, hey, Laz, hey, Laz, is it true? Did you really see a light, like, at the end of the tunnel? You know, it, it, Lazarus, 
did you, did you hear any music? Like, were there angels singing? You know, we want angels to be singing. Were there angels singing? What was it like when you were dead? Lazarus, what was it like when you're, you're laying there, like on the slab? Like, you're dead, man, no heartbeat. And you hear Jesus call you by name. What did that feel like? What, what, what was going through your mind during that time? And you know what just impresses me so much about Lazarus during this time? Is that Lazarus is just chill about the whole thing. He is. I mean, this is a celebration for what Jesus did in his life. He is the one that was dead. Now he's alive but Jesus is the guest of honor because he's the one that raised him from the dead. And Lazarus is just fine with everything that's happening. He's just chill about the whole thing. He doesn't make it about him. He didn't write a book about it. You know, 5,760 minutes in heaven. I did the math. That's four days. He didn't write a book about it. You know, it, it, it wasn't heaven is for real, the prequel. That wasn't it. How about this one? Heaven. Ain't nobody got time for that. No. That's, that's not what he did. No, Lazarus just sits in the presence of Christ, the one who raised him, and he makes it all about him. The next person I want to bring your attention to is his sister Martha. Lazarus's sister Martha, that often gets a, a bad rap because she was busy preparing and serving the dinner. Church, we need Marthas. We need Marthas. Some of you, you're Marthas, and we need Marthas. You need people that will serve so that others can be in the presence of Christ. In, in Luke's narrative of the same event, Jesus didn't rebuke Martha for serving. So many people think that that's what, why he was rebuking her. Not at all. He rebuked Martha for complaining about Mary not helping her in the kitchen. Luke chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, it says, But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord, you, but the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Oh, you know what it feels like when you're frustrated because you're the one doing all the work in the home. You're the only one doing any work around the office. You're the only one doing any work around the church, or at least that's what it feels like. You know the, the feelings, the, 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 the animosity that, that has built up inside of you. And, and soon you just want to scream and you just want to say, won't somebody just, just, just look at everybody else and tell them that they need to get up off of their rear end and come help me? Now, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> I know where you volunteer. I know, I know where you need the help. Martha's in the room. Please listen to me. Marthas, listen, men and women that you serve. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You are needed. You are important. We can't do what we do without you, Martha. For all of those that serve on our parking team and you're outside in the heat and the rain and, and soon it'll be cold and 
and you're out there while other people are enjoying the start of the service, for those that are sometimes stuck in the nursery and, and you're in children's ministry or, or, or you're back running the camera or media or sound lights, wherever it is, for those of you that you get pulled out of the worship service at times, I want you to understand this. We need you, we see you, and we appreciate you. Would you let those Marthas in the room know how much you love and appreciate all that they do? Yes. And then there's Mary, the other sister of Lazarus. Mary is so thankful for what Jesus did for her brother. I mean, her brother was dead for four days. Jesus shows up and brings healing to his life. And she is so overwhelmed with joy that she breaks protocol. And I'm just going to say what, what we all should say she gets weird. You, for those of you that have been raised in church and, and you know this passage of scripture, we've read it so many times that we've almost become callous to it. But I really want you to think about what she does. It is strange worship. It is weird. Like if we do that right now, you're calling the, the crazy house. I mean, n nobody, n you deserve a straitjacket. It was crazy what she did, and she broke protocol to do it. There's no way that this woman should have walked up to the table of a group of men sitting there in that Jewish society. There's no way that she should have done what she did. And, and after dinner, as, as everyone is kicked back and relaxing, Mary takes this expensive bottle of perfume. More on that in a moment. But she takes this expensive bottle of perfume and she pours it on the feet of Jesus. I am convinced that this was a spontaneous act of worship. She did not think about it. It was just overwhelming for her. I mean, Lazarus is sitting on one side of the table and she sees her brother who was dead. She remembers the feelings that she had just a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And she's looking at him thinking, oh my God, he's alive. And she looks across the table and she sees the man that raised him from the dead. And she is so overwhelmed with joy that this spontaneous moment of worship takes place and she doesn't know anything else to do except get the most expensive thing in the house and go pour it on his feet. How do I know it was spontaneous and not planned? She didn't even bring a towel with her to dry his feet. To, to get the excess up off the floor. She didn't think through the details. Jewish women would have long hair and so she let her hair down and began drying his feet with her hair. Unplanned, spontaneous worship in that moment. Judas, sitting at the table, one of the disciples of Jesus. Judas was the church treasurer. He, he was the, the finance manager. He, he was in charge of the ministry's money. And Judas has a problem with Mary's extravagant worship. This moment, this moment of spontaneous worship. He, he's offended by it. And the reason why he's offended is, is that he looks at it and says this expensive bottle of perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And, and many of you can relate to that because that's, that's logical thinking. It's very practical thinking. Let me tell you something about worship. It's not practical. It's not natural. 
He looks at it and thinks, well, let, let me think, how can I get into the mind of Christ and let him realize that this offends me? Oh, Jesus, Jesus, he's always, always looking out for the poor. He's always watching out for the ostracized. You know, the one thing that, that, that gets my rabbi's heart are the less fortunate in life. Let me make it about that. And he says, what is she doing? Why wasn't that perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He did the math and informed Jesus that this was a year's worth of wages. He must have known the perfume. He was familiar with it. And the truth is that perfume was, was considered an investment we, we don't look at it the same anymore. We have a bottle of cologne or perfume. It's sitting on our dresser or it's, it's near our sink. And, and, and we just spray it on before we walk out of the door. Some of you, you give it a little bit more generously than others do. It's the reason why I don't want to hug your neck. Allergies won't take it. I'm blaming it on COVID, but I'm hugging everybody else, but not you. You figure it out. Okay? Just moderation. That's all we're asking. Just a little moderation. That is a completely different substance than what we're talking about with this perfume. In first century Palestine, they would invest in perfumes and oils and, 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 and they would keep them under lock and key. These, these were valuable items to them and you would invest in it as if you were preparing for your future. Just to give you an equivalence in today's market, remember Judah said, if she would have sold this and give it, to, give it to the poor, he said it was worth a year's worth of wages. Minimum wage this past week in Florida went up to $10 an hour. $10 an hour. I know some of you are like, yes, and the others in the room that have to pay that, you're like, no. It went up to $10 an hour. $10 an hour minimum wage. $10 an hour for a 40-hour work week for 52 weeks is $20,800 for the year. $20,800. At minimum wage, Mary just poured out almost $21,000 worth of perfume on the feet of Jesus. And in and, and that day and age, and with perfume and, and these expensive ointments considered an investment, she might have just thrown away her future. Think about it. That might have been the new house that she was saving up for. That could have been her retirement plan or that new 33 AD model Mustang that she's been wanting. Horse. I like John. John, if you read the Gospel of John in its entirety, you'll see he writes a little different than, than some of the other Gospel writers because John, he doesn't hold back. What he's thinking it just comes right out. You know, if the thought comes to his mind, it comes out of his mouth or especially through his pen. And, and, and John just tells us exactly how he feels about Judas in this passage. He lets the cat out of the bag and informs his readers that Judas was a thief. He, he just flat out calls him. He, he was a thief, often stealing from the offering bag. That's how John feels about him. He wasn't concerned for the poor. He wants us to understand that. He said Judas was not concerned for the poor. He was greedy, and he simply didn't see what she did as an act of worship. Last year, there was a, a thread on one of the 
uh, Newberry Citizens face, Facebook pages. Um, there were numerous comments that were put up, and, and I'm trying to be careful with that because I have a feeling that at times certain people may be watching. And I just want to say this really quick. We love you. We love you. If you're watching right now and you've got some differences with us, uh, we love you. We know that you may never come here, but you're welcome to come here. Congregation, would you let them know that we still love them? Let them know. Yeah. We do. We, we hate that there's some differences, but, but nevertheless, we, we are still going to worship. There was this, this Facebook thread, one of the many that were posted, and, and there, there was somebody that was complaining about this new facility here. And most of the follow-up comments, uh, they were positive. I, I looked at our staff and I said, don't, don't try to defend us. Don't go on there and, and, and defend me or, or defend the church. I said, we're judged by our fruit. That's, we're judged by our fruit. And, and, man, it was beautiful. The community stepped up, and they began just coming to our aid. They were, they were going to bat for us, and, and it, was, it was just great. Some of you, you actually commented on there and, and fought for us, and, and we appreciate that. But it, it humored me when someone commented about how we wasted money in building this big building. Like, it offended them. In, amidst of all the positive comments, somebody not, not the original poster, but somebody commented on there about, you know, yeah, what a waste of money. Think about all they could have done with, with that money. And, and they didn't even realize that we value engineered this project to cut out excessive expenses and, and to try and keep it as basic as we could, but still at the same time, give us a place that, that not only we can worship, but that generations after us can worship. You understand that, Right. Can I declare something to you right now? We're not going to wait on a 20, 25-year mortgage to be paid. We're going to pay this thing off so that future generations behind us, that they didn't inherit our debt, they didn't ask to be a part of, of a new church, that, that a church plant that, that, that needed a, a, a whole campus. We're going to pay this thing off. I believe we're going to pay it off within 10 years. Amen? I believe we're going to do it. So get your checkbook out right now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> bad timing, Rocky. Bad time. I know that when people look at it, that they don't get it. But it's always, it always looks like a waste when their hearts are not in the right place. It's why the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the unbeliever. They just don't get it. And I know that there's people that will never understand the need for a facility like this and the lives that are changed inside of a building like this because nobody understands extravagant worship when their heart is filled with greed. And I want you to understand, church, that the contrast of, of the people sitting in this room, the contrast is amazing because I've witnessed this before, how amazing it is when the affection of humanity lines up with the worth of Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful moments that if you've never been a part of it and you've never experienced a moment of worship like that, when you are just so completely overwhelmed and humbled by the presence of your Savior, and it's in that moment that the affection of humanity lines up with the worth of Jesus. But think about this, sitting in the same exact room at the same table. How suicidal it is when our own greed and reasoning devalue the presence of our Savior. This man, 
that has a problem with her pouring perfume on the feet of Jesus. In just a few short days, he is going to take his own life. Why? Because it is suicidal when our own greed and reasoning devalue the presence of a Savior. One person was losing her mind over his glory, while the other was losing his mind over his own gluttony. I want to be found losing my mind over his glory. I don't want all of my preconceived notions, my agenda, the things that I think Christianity needs to look like, I don't want that getting in the way to where I devalue the very presence of a Savior in my life. I need Jesus. I need him. And he doesn't have to get on board with me. I've got to get on board with him. And Jesus looks at Judas and he brings correction to the situation. Judas, leave her alone. That's what he says. Leave her alone. He goes on to say, he says, there will always be people who are poor around you. Judas, you're going to have plenty of time to care for them. But you will not always have me. What Jesus was saying was, let's get to the heart of the matter here. This isn't really about poor people. This is about you. This is about your critical thinking. This is about your skepticism on who I really am. Judas, there will always be poor people. If that's what you're wondering, if that's what you're interested in, if that's who you want to help, long after I'm gone, there will always be poor people. You'll have plenty of time, but you will not always have me. I can only imagine what Jesus was, was really thinking. That's what he said. I can't imagine what he was really thinking. You're offended by her extravagance? Really? Really? You're offended that she places a $21,000 price tag on her adoration towards me, but in six days you will betray me for $400 worth of silver because that's all I'm worth to you? And you're offended by that? He didn't say it, but it had to be going through her mind. But what he did say, leave her alone. I want you to listen to John chapter 12, verse 7 out of our text today because it speaks volumes when Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. Wait, what? You don't, you don't have to go so extreme about it, Jesus. I just didn't like that she poured out the perfume. What, what are you talking about here? Why, why are we going to get so serious in this moment? Like burial as, as in death? Like you're going to die? The common practice of the Jews in the first century was to go to the tomb and anoint the body of the deceased with perfumes and, and special oils. And the first reason for this, it was, it was for very practical purposes. We understand it. I, I probably shouldn't even say it, but, but as the body decomposes, there's just this smell that is associated with the process. 
And so the perfumes and, and, and the oils, they're used to cover up the smell, to cover up the stench. The body of the deceased, right after they were pronounced dead, soon after that, they would do a ceremonial, like a ritual washing with water. And then they would wrap them in a shroud and they would put them in the tomb. And it was perfectly acceptable for the deceased body to later be treated with perfumes and oils as the body began to decompose. But there was another reason why Mary was anointing the feet of Jesus. And it's almost as like she's the only one in the room that truly gets it and understands it. The word Messiah, it means anointed one. And it comes from the Hebrew word used for anointed. They are calling him rabbi, teacher. But I'm not quite certain that they bought into the fact that he is the coming Messiah that they have been waiting for for thousands of years. They're just not quite sure. Even the ones closest to him are just not sure. The word Christ it comes from the Greek word Christo, which also means anointed one. And so when Mary comes up to the dinner table in this spontaneous act of worship, and she begins pouring this expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, Mary was making a statement to Jesus and to everybody else in the room because the whole room, the Bible says, was filled with the fragrance. Everybody could smell it. And the statement that she was making, I believe that this man is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one of Israel. And when nobody else in the room will say it, I will go to the extravagant. I will do whatever it, I will go get the very best offering that I have and I will pour it all over his feet. And she was so excited to express her worship upon him that she poured out her most prized possession on his feet. Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. At her brother's graveside, one chapter earlier, after Lazarus has been dead for four days, Jesus said these words in John chapter 11 and verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When those words are said, it's a bold statement when you're standing in front of a tomb of a man that's been dead for four days. I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody else has control over this. Jesus stands in front of her brother's tomb and says, I am the one that controls the resurrection and the I am I am the resurrection and the life. And when he said, Lazarus, come forth. 
and commanded them to roll a stone out of the way. And they looked up at that tomb and that dead man, her dead brother, is standing there with grave clothes wrapped around him. And Jesus says, loose him and let him go. And her brother walks out and he is healthy. And now she's sitting at a table with him. And he's on one side, Jesus is on the other. And she says, I just can't take it. I can't take it anymore because of what he's done for me and for my family. I have to worship him in spirit and in truth. I've got to pour it out all over his feet, my very best offering. She knew that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. There was no doubt in her mind, and she knew that if anybody, anybody could conquer death, hell, and the grave, this man's got the best chance of doing it. Leave her alone. Judas, don't let your narcissism, your skepticism, and your criticism ruin this moment for her. Leave her alone. Because when I die, I need her to believe that I am still the resurrection and the life. Because when the rest of you are mourning, I need her to know, don't ruin this for her. Leave her alone. And sometimes, church, I'm worried that sometimes our narcissism, our skepticism, and our criticism might be hurting some others in the faith. Leave her alone, Judas. Just leave her alone. You don't have to get it. You don't even have to participate. But don't ridicule her. Let me tell you something, church. Don't you ever look down your nose at the way somebody worships. The magnitude of their worship is probably in response to the magnitude of the hell that they had to walk through. But Jesus brought them out. Don't criticize people for how they worship. I've got to bring this thing to a close. I'm not preaching the whole series today, I promise. Fast forward nine days later. Jesus was arrested, went through an illegal, expedient trial, was crucified, He's been buried in a tomb for three days. And we know that according to scripture that there's at least six that visited the tomb of Christ. At least six people that visited his tomb. And the Bible alludes to there were, there were more. There were others. Three of the people that visited that tomb were named Mary. Mary Magdalene. Mary the wife of Clopas. And Mary, the mother of James. Think about that. Three of them, three of the six that we know of were all named Mary. And they were there to anoint the body of Jesus with perfumes and with oils. They were there to tend to a corpse. But you know which Mary was not there? Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was not there. 
she didn't have to go to a tomb. She had the sense to anoint him before he was crucified because she knew that he wasn't going to be in that tomb afterwards. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, he said, He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Mary was convinced that Jesus had authority over death. Because she watched him raise her brother from the dead. And the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest death benefit that any of us could receive. When we come to the knowledge of who he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. When we come to that knowledge, when we process through our own narcissism, skepticism, and, and criticism, when we realize that the tomb is empty and he is alive, it will change how we view death. And I've had to step back and be reminded That he is the resurrection and the life. And with so much loss over the past year and a half. That not one moment of this has caught him off guard. Though he slay me. Yet shall I live. We used to sing this song. When I was growing up, it said heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. As a child of God, as a blood-bought saint of God, as an heir with Christ Jesus, we must have a healthy understanding of death. We've got to reprogram our mind. It doesn't mean that we won't hurt. It doesn't mean that we won't mourn. It's what the scripture says, that we just learn to mourn with hope. And God has reminded me this year that I'm just kind of homesick for a place that I've never been. Because he lived, he died, and was resurrected. 
we are the beneficiaries of the greatest death benefit. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.